Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Alexandra Hemingsley returns to the podcast and I'm so glad that she has. You may remember when Hemo came on the show a few years ago. She had just written the book Leap In about open water swimming or more to the point facing fears and challenges head on and previously I had read her first book Running Like a Girl and had messaged her on Twitter at the time just saying how brilliant it was because I was also very much into running at the time and both of these books framed physical pursuit as a mental and emotional endeavor rather than a means to achieve a particular physique and at the time that was a really big change from the fitness narrative that women in particular were exposed to today obviously the conversation has moved forward considerably but but at the time back in the day Hemo was one of the first to really nail this and put words to what many women were feeling about exercise fitness all of those things her new book is different, although perhaps not entirely. And actually, one of the first things that um, uh, Hemo says when we uh, started talking is it's sort of an unintentional third memoir about bodies, but there's a lot that goes into this book. So when we sat down last time, we talked about Leap In, but there was a lot going on in her world behind the scenes. She was a new mother who had been through a pretty difficult IVF experience She had been assaulted on a train when she was nine months pregnant and that uh, subsequently went to trial. So she had to go through that as well. And her husband revealed her intention to transition. And Somebody to Love, the book she's written about this experience and this time in her life, is so searingly honest. And it's a brilliant memoir about how she dealt with a series of events that made her feel less like herself and lost in a way she hadn't experienced before. 
There's the IVF, and uh, I've spoken to so many friends who've been through it who talk about how challenging that is physically, mentally, and emotionally. Being a new mother, we know that that's challenging in and of itself. The assault that she went through, and in one conversation, the life she thought she had made for herself evaporated, and she had to piece together what her future might look like while also battling feeling dissociated from her body and going through all of these really challenging experiences. Honestly, listeners, I found this book really profoundly moving. On the one hand, there's her compassion and generosity when I'm sure it would have felt really good to lean into the sugar high emotions of rage and hatred. But also, I don't think I've ever read a better description of how it feels physically to reclaim your mental and emotional health from the depths. And this is why, listeners, I'm extremely unprofessional in this show and I actually cry. Sorry, I really, you can tell when you hear it. And I, when I listened back, I thought, oh goodness, it was, it was going to happen because um, the way that Hemo wrote about her own mental health via a particular section of the book where she's on this pretty treacherous hike took me back to my own battle with depression. So much so that even thinking about it now just makes me feel quite choked up because it is such a perfect, it really just made me think, if I wanted to ever explain to anybody what it was like for me, I would just say, please read this please read this because that kind of gives you a sense. This is an extremely wide-ranging conversation because we talk about everything from how we talk about women's bodies to what it's like to uh, have someone tell you that they're going to transition in the context with which uh, it happened to uh, Hemo and what that meant for her in terms of how she educated herself and then we talk about mental health and the assault that she went through and there's just there's a lot in here so To kind of give you an idea of what the conversation contains, we discuss how the conversation around women's bodies has changed in the 10 years since she wrote Running Like a Girl and how the experiences in her own life, particularly with the transition of her former husband, made her reassess how she spoke about bodies and particularly women's bodies. Why it makes perfect sense sometimes that you have to reach breaking point in order to be able to get to where you want to go to. The terrifying freedom of knowing it was never about me when her marriage ended the judgmental world of new motherhood and how that felt and what that was like to navigate the temptation of the toxic path of rage and ha- and anger and anger maybe i'm hungry not hangry the toxic path of rage and anger why it became such a mission for her and why it was so important for her to understand and support the trans community the implications of the pink and blue world that we live in and how essentially this experience really lifted uh, the veil of how she saw the world and realized how it had been through something of a pink and blue filter. Why when you go through a traumatic experience has value in feeling all of your feelings. Her advice for anyone who feels lost, not like themselves and who wants to get back to feeling whole again, if you will, and so much more, honestly. There is a lot of chat in this uh, conversation and I really appreciated Hemo's honesty and her generosity and just being so, so open. And I found it incredibly inspiring. I have to say, I found the book really inspiring and I found this conversation really helpful and inspiring too. And I hope that you do as well. And obviously I just want to pop a trigger warning in here. There is talk of uh, the sexual assault that she experienced. So please be mindful of the fact that that will come up in the show. The links to Hemo, to her books, everything that we discuss will be in the show notes. But for now, please join me in welcoming back Alexandra Hemingsley on The Emma Gunn Show. Alexandra Hemingsley, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, listeners, you will remember uh, Alexandra from her 
first visit to the show where we talked about well, we talked about all sorts including yeah open water swimming and running because you are an author a broadcaster and ghost writer and you're back on the show because yes well a lot of time has passed <laughs> things have happened <laughs> yes things took a pivot didn't they <laughs> Well, they did. And actually, that probably brings us quite neatly onto the fact that when I saw you, so we actually did our mm-hmm. first podcast together in person, because yes. uh, no pandemic at that point. <laughs> um, we, we did the podcast, we did it in your home, and then we went and had pizza for lunch with a friend. And you seemed absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, and it was, a, it was a lovely day. It definitely was. <laughs> But, but there was, things all, there was also on. a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was. Um, I think, I can't remember when it was. It was, it was. it was spring? We were just trying to figure out. Little Mix had just played nearby or were playing that evening. Yeah, so it must so have been early, summery. Spring, early summer, yeah. Um, it was, um, it, it, yeah, my, my, the person who was my husband when we did that podcast, no, when I wrote the book that we were talking about, that mm-hmm. Leap In, um, and I had around that time, not long before, split up because she had realised that she had to transition. Mm-hmm. And my son, who was like crawling around making a whole load of noise when we were trying to do the podcast, um, was very small. And it, I, I'd, at that point, like when we arranged to do that interview, I thought it was going to be quite a simple kind of, chat because I had that swimming book coming out and paperback and you'd read the running book years before and we'd always been meaning to have a chat and then I it just seemed like the trajectory of things was all going to be quite simple and then by the time we actually did speak um it was a lot more complicated and um what came out of it was that I ended up writing a third sort of memoir about bodies that has sort of it sort of tied up in a bow the other two and kind of like almost comes full circle because it looks at some of how um social media and the conversation around women's bodies has changed since I wrote Running Like a Girl which I wrote nine years ago and in in Somebody to Love which is the new book yeah I talk about some aspects of the publication about of that book which I felt really uncomfortable about but other people have now um, published sporty books and have been marketed really differently and that was what I was reaching for and um, it's been really interesting to sort of see my place in the evolution of women's uh, bodies and relationships with exercise and sport and then to kind of loop back and look through the lens of my ex's transition and what I've kind of thought and rethought and all kinds of uh thinkings about women's bodies and what they can be and what they should be or might be or will be and all the rest of it so yeah there's um there's been a big thing (laughs) so yeah just going back to that you talk about running like a girl it's only uh when you say it there I think actually you were one of the first people who spoke about exercise in that way running in that way yeah it was why I wrote it because when I got into running all that there was to read to guide you there was um instant it was I think it was maybe the year Instagram was born when it was still like just people using hipstamatic style filters there was no kind of monetization or gurus there Mm. um and so there wasn't really forums for encouragement and discussion and and um 
the runs that I describe in running like a girl are pre iPhones as well. So I was drawing the maps on my arms and <laughs> trying to work yes, out street you know. names on your forearm. Yeah. <laughs> and the, all there was, there was Sam Murphy, who's brilliant and amazing. And she did all the London marathon, you know, when you, when you get a place to do the London marathon and you go to do the day and they teach you how to train. Whereas now, you know, you just put London marathon into Instagram and there's a million training plans. Whereas then it was just Sam Murphy's books that you bought when you picked up your number and stuff and she's she is amazing and it's a great book but it's a manual it doesn't have anything about emotions in it and there was a really big market for very male-led adventurous narrative non-fiction so it was day five in the desert and my feet was stumps and my <laughs> eyebrows fallen off because of the sand and and they neither of those bore any relationship to someone trying to get around the park with a wobbly body mm. and now Instagram's gone so far that way that I see women with incredible bodies almost manufacturing like leaning forward as far as they can to synthesize stomach rolls because it's you know you gotta have a wobbly body if you're talking about exercise almost um so yes yeah, it was a look at that as well yeah it, has it, it was it be impossible to look I mean my, my career had been by by the point that my ex realized she had to transition um my career had been talking and writing and discussing women's bodies with women so it was um yeah I couldn't I felt like I couldn't it would have been extremely disingenuous of me to continue to write and talk about in that area was that out acknowledging what had happened in my life and it would have been disingenuous to have looked at anything to do with trans women without acknowledging my where I'd come from in my journey, which was, you know, I, I made money. I, you know, I, I lived for years off the <laughs> profits of standing up in front of audiences and making podcasts like this, talking about it's OK to have a normal body. And when I said a normal body, what I was saying was a, a, a cis white usually able-bodied and even when I was saying big I was meaning 16 size 16 to kind of and and it was a very uh it was it was a massive step from where we were which was men in sand and training manuals ultra runners running like a girl <laughs> yeah that was a big leap because no one else was doing that but it was also many steps behind where the conversation now is where I I feel like filled with cringe at my confidence in discussing the normal woman when what I what my perception of I mean I wasn't specifying it but I was I was thinking it was this extremely narrow window of girls who looked like me when I was growing up because I didn't have any other experience and that's on me and that's kind of what I wanted to discuss in somebody to love is um how much else there is in the world and also that it I, what I really really wanted to do was to show someone go through that thinking because I think it's really easy to see the preachy graphic insta post or uh, an angry tweet and just think hey no I'm not pre full of prejudice I do nice stuff and so I support women without really thinking, well, where's this person that wrote this post coming from? There's so much perspective now. Mm. Um, and I think that's 
what I wanted to to sort of demonstrate almost was the the process by which I reached where I am now compared to where I was and to be honest about that because the minute you kind of think yeah I've probably said some things which I'm would be quite ashamed of if, if somebody decided to trawl through my entire work past. I probably have, and I can see why I did it. And I can see that I wouldn't do it now. And I'm perfectly happy to talk about how I got there. Mm. And I think a lot of people are still understandably stuck in, but I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't my fault. And it's kind of like, that's not an interesting conversation to have. The interesting conversation to have is how do we unpick it and unravel and work forward I think it's important to be to be wrong because the idea that you just yeah right the whole time is a nonsense and so much pressure and all yeah exactly that's exactly it's so much pressure the panic of trying to retrospectively manicure your own digital or professional past I mean how could you sleep at night if you couldn't wake up in the morning and go yeah there's things i would like to move forward from now and I think we we need to get better whether we have a kind of profile as in you know you're a Hollywood star that gave some slightly shady sounding interview 12 years ago or whether you're just someone with a digital output that can be called out on we need to get better at acknowledging that we've done stuff that wasn't great instead of going no 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 that's not what I meant and like trying to like like Wallace and Gromit like reef doing that train track while the train is moving you can't you have to acknowledge that stuff but also I think we as consumers could probably do with getting a little bit better at letting people learn I do think sometimes people are so because I think especially like Hollywood level or super super um, influencer level there's been a lot of disingenuous apologies Mm. that we tend to think they all are whereas I think some people do learn and are curious and we have to allow space for that exist you don't even have to be at Hollywood level I think even uh, yeah look at Instagram people getting cancelled and you don't even have to have millions and millions of followers and maybe there's a reason to be cross with that person but cancel culture I obviously is problematic yeah I think well I think the thing with cancel culture is that it doesn't really exist I think it's like uh it's see cancel culture seems to exist to be discussed by uh columnists and chat shows rather than actually living and breathing existing like you do not have a right to have your product consumed and if it starts to feel outdated to people they will move on Mm. that's not cancel culture that's being flexible and interested and uh, and also knowing that um things ebb and flow in and out of fashion in terms of conversations and stuff like I definitely don't sell as many running books as I used to because there are loads more people talking about that kind of subject but I'm also really excited to read you know Paul Nabell's book which is coming out in a month or so and other people you know Bryony really diversified Bryony Gordon that sort of writing by talking about experiences of addiction which I just don't have and um you know anything that becomes a monoculture becomes boring and so I would rather the table was busy with interesting women chatting than (laughs) you know (laughs) lonely and powerful (laughs) 
Now, someone listening to this might think it's so interesting that Alexandra's just said that uh, her ex uh, said that she was going to transition and we go immediately on to the narrative <laughs> about, about women's running, bodies yeah. <laughs> yeah. and sort of gloss over that bit because, and oh, I know we're not glossing over it, but um, I read Somebody to Love and I found it so utterly moving and I've listeners, you can tell I've already gushed uh, over this before we started recording because uh and this is evident in running like a girl it's evident in leap in the and I'm trying to say this in a way that it sounds sounds admiring and not patronizing but the strength of character and the grit and resolve you have seems to be un just unparalleled mm. thank you um <laughs> at the time it's it's very difficult to sort of explain um, because I, yeah, it did. It, there were definitely mornings when I was staring at the ceiling and thinking, oh man, I've got to dig deep to get through today. Definitely. I'm not downplaying it. It was not an easy time in my life. It was pretty, probably the hardest time, but what probably came a bit before was harder when, when I didn't understand what was happening, when I could see that my ex, who is a really, really lovely person, who I had known for years before we got together, who we, we were together for years of going through IVF, and who I have no doubt in any part of my heart really loved me and still does in many ways love me and wanted to do the right thing by me, had tried every possible avenue to find an alternative to confronting the fact that they were trans. And, um, and I think that's something that is common in all sorts of situations, whether it's, you know, lots of ways of, you know, all the L's and the G's and the B's and the D's and the pluses <laughs> uh, have gone through a version of that or at, or on some point of the spectrum. And it, but it's also something we do about all kinds of things to greater or lesser degrees of try, let's try and avoid this from every possible angle. And, and I'd seen during that time, the conversation around trans lives become um, nationally uh, much more prominent and much more toxic as well. So I could see why that you would have rising fear around that. And I um, have LGBT friends and family. Um, so I'd sort of seen conversation around that. It wasn't like a total shock to me. So I could see why that would have been affecting her. And also there was, it was awful, you know, it's catastrophically managed to, to realize <laughs> at that point in your life when I was so vulnerable, but also it made perfect sense why you had to reach breaking point. And so I've seen a lot of people have responded to the book by saying it was like the biggest act of cruelty. Um, and there were definitely days when I did think like that, but I was also at the same time, really clearly able to see all of the surrounding factors um, that would mean and, and how hard she tried to do be the absolute best parent, best, husband as it was then um and in case there are any trans listeners I should make this clear um D my ex and I had a have and it's it's in the opening of the book um have like a I definitely never misgender her but 
because it's very difficult to talk about your ex and be using female pronouns without you understanding that I wasn't all along in a lesbian relationship Mm. we do have like an amnesty on the word husband just for for clarity um and so that's used with permission um and because it's true (laughs) that Mm. was like the legal position um but yeah I I was I was never able to not see that D had reached a really difficult point and had tried every other path so there was almost a sort of terrifying freedom once I found out that that was what it was and I and I'd been like in the mire of new motherhood when you know that is such a judgmental world to be in of like weight loss whether you're feeding right whether your baby's you know whether you're being strict enough or not strict enough and loving enough and have you gone back to work too soon have you gone back to work not soon enough to to realize that what was happening with my marriage was absolutely not my fault is a freedom that very few women experience and there was like a terrifying liberation to it to go it was never me it was nothing to do with me I've tried everything I've and all like all we can do now is try and work our way out of this rubble as honorably as possible and to have that sort of degree of ego and almost like sexual anxiety that can exist in the end of a marriage of like am I not do have you gone off me to reduce it to its most childness childish it just wasn't there. It just wasn't relevant to the conversation. And that was a really amazing thing. Like, I don't know. So like I, I watched Coronation Street last night <laughs> and Fizz and Tyrone have been breaking up, which will date this, if, <laughs> depending on where you air it. And I did watch it and it was heartbreaking. And you know, I'm, I've watched Coronation Street all my life. I'm really invested in those characters. And I was watching it. I was thinking, wow, I just... I just didn't have to think that. And to some people who are very wedded to anger around trans lives, they just don't believe me. They don't believe me that that was a sort of freedom. There was grief. There was all kinds of other feelings that were going on. But that 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 sense of um, kind of liberty to to be who I needed to be was extreme in a way that at the end of lots of marriages just doesn't happen. And yeah, it was it was kind of an amazing, weird perspective to see it all from, which was I, why sometimes I was happy having a pizza. Because I wasn't <laughs> worrying if my husband had gone off with someone <laughs> because the reasons were so weird and specific. Well, not weird, it's wrong. Word. Yeah, but, but specific. I, I think it's what I found so interesting about it is, I mean, did it happen quite quickly? Because taking the specific circumstances out of it because not everyone listening to this might have your exact experience but just thinking about Mm. you essentially had a your world fell around your ears essentially like your it was just a cataclysmic piece of information that just rewrote everything from that moment forward and I know that you articulate it beautifully in the book you were you were angry you were furious you were hurt you were upset you thought it was cruel but it did feel as though And the thing I actually found really beautiful about your story is how quickly you got to a place of compassion for the pain that. Yeah, well, I think it was because it was very visible what that that Dee was in extreme pain, and obviously, you know, 
someone who's cheating and can't decide if to leave their wife or their mistress is in their own version of extreme pain. But that's, it's a very well-trodden path, that. And that this is what I mean about the sort of strange feeling of liberty. Because some days, don't get me wrong, it was unbelievably lonely. Because trying to talk to people about it, um, you, I found very often all I got back was people, what, how people would respond to it if it was them, rather than what I was telling them. Right. So I'd be saying I'm at the things I'm worried about are, for instance, uh, are we going to sort of am I going to get used to using the right pronouns before my son is verbal? Because he was only six months old then. And I didn't want my son to grow up anxious around using words. I wanted it to be organic. And so they were like really sort of hyper specific things, whereas my mum was going how are you ever going to find love again now you've got a new baby and you're so tired? When are you ever going to go out and have fun again? And I was thinking, I've got a list of nine friends who said, let me take the baby, you need to go out and have fun. And those were friends who were in turn freaking out about, you know, what would happen if their husband left them and they were going, oh my God, make sure you nail her down to proper custody arrangements because they're the kind of person that's worried about custody if they break up. And no one was actually kind of going, like, tell me, and and this was not, this is not a fault in any of these people. It was just because there's no, um, there's no path, there was no path for it. And if you look online, really the only path is a very toxic one of rage and anger. Um, there's like, I'm not even gonna say it because I don't want to add to the algorithmic powers, but there's like a specific term that women whose husbands have um, transitioned or exes have transitioned um, use amongst themselves. And and I think, I'm, lo- I'm really glad I didn't find out about that till too late. At, at that point that it happened, I was like, it's a strange old world when um, Chris Kardashian, or I think she uses Jenna, um, is the only person who you relate to. <laughs> and, you know, you don't realise how much you've absorbed and internalised. And this is obviously a wider point about LGBT communities and the lack of representation out there. But... For as long as I'd been watching soap operas or going to the cinema with my friends when I was a teenager or, um, you know, laughing at memes or whatever, I knew what the kind of breakup traditions were that, you know, you lie in the bed and eat ice cream and cry and watch Bridget Jones and then you go and get pissed and fall over in a bar and you know sleep with someone you shouldn't do and then you get a bit angry and maybe cut the legs off some trousers and like there's there's just, and and it felt like in those instances everyone around you knows their lines like my mum would have known what to do to it wasn't that she wasn't being supportive it was that she didn't know what would be supportive in this right. instance and um it's similarly with the kind of cast <laughs> of my friendship around friendships around me was there was a lot of people um, scrabbling to educate themselves because they didn't they knew my ex they didn't want to be upsetting to her they wanted to be compassionate but they would you know and then people would get like paralyzed about how to talk to me about it because they were so scared of using a wrong term because they'd seen you know someone lose their mind on news night or whatever that they were too scared to even address it and would pretend it wouldn't happen and 
in lots of ways that was um really hard and really lonely um but it did mean like uh, there was this kind of like well if there's no path I'm gonna make the path that feels best to me I'm gonna like I can't get there's no way out of this rubble so I'm just gonna dig over here for a bit and dig over there and see like and I did have a very strong sense that I had my son with me and I think it would have been I mean D is totally we have we don't even have a custody arrangement it's never even come up we've always compatibly co-parented um but I had this really strong feeling that I in that I was doing it for both of us like I had to learn a lot about um trans lives because he was always going to have to know and I was going to have to put my shoulders down two inches and go into nursery and tell them and offer to buy the books if they didn't have representative books so that he wasn't learning when he wasn't with me that this was what a family looked like and all of that stuff so it was easier that I was kind of doing it for both of us um it helped me to confront some of it but yeah again I find that really wonderful the fact that okay this is it's that acceptance of the reality I think yeah and this is something that I think I'm I see people who I've admired and read for decades who feel sometimes I mean there's all sorts of things that are painful and confronting about the existence of trans people I mean I don't mean painful they shouldn't it shouldn't be painful but I can see why some people are it, it confronts stuff in them if they've been brought up a certain way. Um, but there is no denying that they have always existed and that they always will exist. And that a lot of people view it from a very white, kind of almost post-colonial way of the sort of heteronormative universe, whereas different cultures through different ages have had trans people in their art and have revered trans people and have normalized trans people. I mean, they, it is normal to have trans people, but you know what I mean? Um, and, and trying to kind of now, after thousands of years of civilization and the accompanying art and relationships and religions around it, to try and now go, no, that's normal, not normal, that shouldn't happen. I'm going to um, I'm going to put that on the internet and that will probably stop it. <laughs> Seems to me <laughs> to be an act of self-harm so extreme that um, yeah, I mean, there's lit I mean, I want to say there's no one you're hurting more than yourself, but when it comes to legislation and like abuse on the street, that's not really true because you are hurting trans people and you are hurting their families because I think a lot of people take the uh, angle that, I don't know, they sort of see trans people as if they exist entirely in isolation, just like in a sort of glass box. Whereas trans people have children, they have partners, they have exes, they have siblings, and all of they, they, you know, they exist in society with the appropriate and accompanying emotional ties. And, you know, my son has seen people kicking sand in the face of my ex as a two year old, which must have been, I mean, in a playground, not just like random sand. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that's incredibly painful to to know and 
that's that it's part of that kind of emotional landscape that I'm trying to prepare my son for so that he can deal with that and see it for what it is and in context but it's also like mate what are you doing like all you're doing is potentially upsetting an innocent two-year-old like it's yeah you can't make trans people go away because they make you think things you might not be comfortable with about what makes a woman Mm, it's very true Um, and you you do obviously have a huge amount of compassion and have then spent a long time understanding or making the effort taking the time to understand the uh, trans lgbtqi plus um, issues and supporting the mm. community and i was really struck by the compassion you had in the book but i wonder when we, when we're talking about self dis- self recovery if you mm. love how were you able to exercise compassion towards yourself and was that did it have a similar timeline or was it a different process altogether yeah it was there were just days when my head was just so full because there's so much that you take on when you have your first child especially around body image and stuff and when I had my son it was he was born in 2017 which I think looking back on it now was the absolute glory era of mumstagram I think it was before that had become a tarnished crown to be an Instagram mum. And um, I I was naive about the monetization of that universe and would sort of, you know, how the algorithm just, you know, gets one whiff of you buying a clear blue stick on your Boots Advantage card and suddenly the whole internet is like going, (laughs) so, organic (laughs) breast pads? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's awful. It's really awful because when you're having IVF, the the whole world is waving its organic breast pads at you and you're like, well, no, it didn't work, mate. Can you just, mm. you know, you can't tell the algorithm you've had a miscarriage until you've Googled miscarriage that many times that you've just, you're wretched. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I'm laughing about it, but it 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 it, it is really toxic the way that the computers are invading your brain at that point because you're seeing much less of your friends and I I mean people who've done it during the pandemic I think they should all have medals um because it's so isolating anyway early motherhood just just on a practical level that you it takes you five times longer to leave the house your baby's sleeping and needing to eat at weird times so your windows of freedom are they're not not there but they're compromised um your friends who have children at different ages might not want to see. So, so there's all of that stuff going on. And um, and then Instagram got added to it. And I didn't understand that these women were being sent all this stuff for free. I was thinking, oh my God, this, you know, spiraling costs for um, sleepy heads and, you know, certain kinds of mum rucksacks or uh, like, I don't know, just, you know, special moisturizers for pregnant people and all of that stuff and so there's all of that going on in my brain then there was like not just educating myself on trans politics and trans lives but also I really wanted to make sure that I believed what I believed that I'd thought about it from all angles I mean when I think about if people had seen me like when my son was like maybe nine months old like when we were walking somewhere I must have been walking along with like a kind of 
a cartoon thought bubble coming out of my head and like a sort of really deep frown because I was I was trying to read everything I could around it some of which was obviously really upsetting but also I didn't want to just go you can't just decide no one trans person and then suddenly like pick a team you have to read widely look at people's online behavior relative to their output and like I really wanted to really really thoroughly look at where I'd come from with my my own thoughts around women's bodies and contextualize it and because there there are things that are confronting um and then there was like my body was destroyed I'd had IVF I'd had a complicated pregnancy and a relatively easy birth but I had in the end I had to have an elective c-section so it wasn't the day itself was very unstressful but the wreckage of my body was stressful and and I felt like this my superpower I felt like I'd had my wings clipped basically I couldn't run and it took a long time to feel comfortable swimming again I didn't realize how much you'll use your core when you're swimming until someone cut through my core (laughs) um and so those spaces where I used to go to think and to have solace felt not available to me and that was I think that was one of the hardest things was I I did I felt like I'd been grounded almost like I'd had lead boots put on because I couldn't just leave the house and run for 40 minutes without the intention of setting off to think some things through but you know what it's like you feel the boom 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 of your feet start to match your heart rate and your brain just kind of goes into the it's like goes into the back office (laughs) and does some filing while no one's in the sitting on the front desk (laughs) and um it's it's a really beautiful thing that happens when you're exercising in that way and it and I could I didn't have it like all my thinking felt like me scowling thinking things through and it was a it I think I just, I think the only thing that probably stopped me from getting really depressed was the hour by hour neediness of a young child. And I think if it had happened when my son was very young, like when you've got a newborn and they don't even really acknowledge you, (laughs) they're just like, you know, it's, it's quite thankless, the very early stages. I was lucky that, um, those dark thinking hours and days did take place when he was kind of nine months to 18 months, um, which is like living with a really endearing, jolly, tiny, drunk flatmate who. (laughs) Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. No, just he's just such a sort of happy, jolly person. And it would be like you'd be going, but then I read the thing in The Guardian took this angle, but then there was that blog, and that blog was by someone who is, you know, does have a PhD, but and and you know, they do sort of seem to follow it. But then what about the thing that they said on Channel 4 News? And then I and I'd be really like trying to work through one kind of really highly specific point of you know, feminist politics or something. And then I'd look in the corner and my son would have found an old leaf that had been caught on the wheel of the buggy and would be squealing with delight <laughs> and like rolling on his back with his new cool leaf. And and it was just such an instant snap out of that um, that it was, it was like having like someone just kind of put a little basket of joy in your lap once every couple of hours. Um, Whereas, yeah, I think if it had happened in the very early days when you've got all the caring and none of the response and none of the kind of silliness, it would have been much harder. And also immeasurably harder to happen um, with a, you know, a teenager Mm. where you were having... I never had to explain anything to my son while it was happening because he he was too young to understand. So as he has become verbal, he has learnt... He calls my ex something completely separate to me, but he knows that he's in a, a two mum family. If you see what I mean, mm. he know. Um, so it, yeah, it's been kind of quite bespoke for him as he's gone along. But it's nice because he doesn't know any other way. He's never had to do the grieving that I had to do for a life I thought I was going to have. Um, I think that's the thing. So, that must be very, very hard to navigate, say, an 11-year-old through. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's something that you mentioned a minute ago, you know, it was from he was nine months old to 18 months old. This wasn't a quick process. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> Even though you came to a place where I think, and I said this to you before we started recording, I think the temptation when the world falls around you, when it just feels mm. like, and a lot of people I'm sure listening can relate to that feeling um it can be very uh tempting and tantalizing to go for the quick fix emotions like the sugar high emotions like anger yes yeah and even it doesn't even feel as though you indulged any of those it feels as though you very quickly went "Mm -mm, I'm playing the long game and I'm sure that the fact that you have a son meant that Mm. obviously you're playing a long game anyway but I just am curious, did you did you have to reject those sugar high emotions? I didn't, I did let myself feel them when I felt them. I remember a friend, one of my friends rang me up when when this was all going on and she I sort of left her a, I left her a WhatsApp voice note saying, look, I, I'm doing this. I did a lot of it on voice notes because I after a couple of phone calls, I realized people were just like absolutely flawed. They didn't know what the response was. And was, I, then I didn't want to spend the next 20 minutes going, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, it doesn't matter. Don't worry. You don't have to get pronouns right with me straight away and all that kind of thing. So I did left a voice note and she just left me one back going, I think the really important thing here is that you just have to feel all your feelings. 
And at the time, I just looked at my phone and did a massive eye roll and was like, <laughs> well, yes. But actually, she was completely right. Like, there was no way to get around any of the feelings like I had to go through like what's it going on a bear hunt there wasn't any way over them there wasn't any way under them I had to go through them and that's true I would have you know I I never denied myself feeling anger but I think the thing that I was clear-sighted about was that I didn't just feel angry at my ex I felt angry at my ex and the world that had got us here and part of that world was, um, you know, some columnists or politicians or whatever who've significantly contributed to making my life harder by making trans lives harder, significantly. And in many cases, they've done it in the name of supporting women and they have not supported me. They have caused almost irreparable damage to people's lives. Um, And also just the kind of general pink and blue world in which we live it's it was so obvious that things like that um and you you know you can't waste your emotional energy on going to asda and getting furious that girls school shoes are more flimsy than boys shoes because from the age of three or four the assumption is girls will be less active you it's it's legitimate anger to have and you know and people do and can and will and should campaign around things like that and I will always try and use my voice when I can but I was in what what was really important and what the thing I gave most effort to was not not feeling angry but apportioning appropriate anger to each thing because I was furious some days with my ex but also I could see how all this other stuff had contributed and I had been assaulted when I was pregnant and I had a court case going on during this time as well and the guy who did assault me on a train he grabbed my ass when I was nine months pregnant and denied that he'd done it and when when I went and moved to a different carriage. His friends came and blocked me into that carriage to tell me to take it back and that I was a liar. It was terrifying. And I was also very keen that I didn't get snagged on an assault court case and couldn't emotionally get past that because my marriage had broken up. But I was also really mindful (laughs) that my ex shouldn't have to bear the appropriate levels of rage and terror that I felt about that incident because she was nothing to do with it she had never been anything but supportive on that day and through that court case so it was I definitely didn't not feel anger but it was a right old muddle trying to work out where to put it all and that was in some ways everything it was like I was walking out of a a building that had been burnt to the ground so it was almost like there was, I had this opportunity to completely rebuild loads of assumptions that I'd had. Um, and in some ways it was terrifying because that was lonely and I really did feel like I was, I thought I was going to have to totally restart everything about my life. And it do, and it has definitely taught me who, you know, anyone who's been through any sort of trauma finds there's a certain sort of enlivening that it has in that the good friendships stay and the ones that weren't right for you fall away and um 
something that I found really interesting happened last spring, like spring 2020, was I was just starting to really feel back on my feet then. And I was getting, I'd, I'd finished writing Somebody to Love, which is the, the book about all of this stuff. And I was just starting to do the edits for it. And um, so I had a really very powerful awareness that you can be poodling through your life and absolutely everything can fall away like like you've been living in a house of cards. And I was suddenly keenly aware of the people in my life to whom this had never occurred. Because when the first lockdown and the pandemic happened, there were people who'd been through bad stuff in their life who were kind of either able to gather themselves and okay, okay, I know what mode I need to go into, or who were like, this is bad, this is reminding me of dark times in my life and previous griefs or whatever, I need to kind of shut myself off a bit. And then there were people who I was like, oh, wow, I didn't realise you just had this kind of blissful existence that you're this kind of spiralling. And I felt almost, um, I mean, obviously not about the deaths, but about the sense of a national emergency. I did feel an almost like a sort of giddiness that, it wasn't just me. There was something awful was happening and it wasn't just happening to me. I'd felt so lonely for so long battling my way through all this that then it was like, everyone's in this. Wow, like you can go into the news agent and say something and they'll know what I mean. And, you know, just if you walk down the street and nod to someone, there's a real solidarity in that. And I had not, I'd felt like no one could possibly understand the set of challenges I was experiencing for the previous two years. And then suddenly the whole world was in this giant challenge and there was something quite overwhelming about it this time last year. It was interesting to see other people's response. <laughs> I think it's interesting what you say there about feeling lonely. And we sort of mm. come back a little bit to what I said at the beginning, because I would, when we hung out last time, I would never have known to sort of put my hand on your leg or say, look, is everything all right? Or do you need to talk yeah. or anything like that? And it's one of the things... Um, people say to me now about the issues that I went through a few years ago. Mm. I, I, I felt very lonely. I was really struggling. And I went through a period of maybe not necessarily proud of it, but a little bit like you're saying, I think sometimes you have to feel what you're feeling. And mm. I definitely felt a sense of resentment towards friends and people who hadn't managed to magically intuit what you've been going through. Exactly. And just sort of like, oh, so you've disappeared. So, oh, you know, it just sort of, but then I also, as you just said, came around to the idea of you can't take everyone with you and that's okay. Maybe that's yeah. the right thing. Um, yeah. So I just thought it was, it was interesting about, um, and a few people I know who have been through their own traumas, whether it's mental health mm. or what have you have said, they haven't felt the same pinch uh, of lockdown because they already had those strategies in place to handle yeah mental or emotional isolation and feelings of loneliness and so the physical one was something they could actually handle pretty well yeah I felt I found the last the last few months of lockdown um much harder than the first few months of lockdown because there was this sort of sense of togetherness in the first few months that I found missing from the last few months and also I think the book came out and I had to talk about really difficult things a lot and do a lot of media around it and stuff and um and and it it felt like it was 
very uh, complicated to be talking about those traumas at a time when everyone else was suffering too. Mm. And it's been really interesting because there have been things in the book that I could never have known when I was either living it or writing it, that people have taken, people who've had babies during the pandemic have written to me several. I've been really struck by how many because it was, just, yeah, like I said, it's just completely um, out of the blue. I could never have put this in for those people um, saying that the sad they felt such sadness about not having their sort of maternity leave or their early baby years of, you know, sitting in a coffee shop, drinking cake, making new friends or doing the baby swimming and all those classes in steamy rooms full of dribble, which is like the most toxic environment. And at the time you're doing it normally, you're thinking, mm, get the antibodies, come on, who else can you lick? You know, have this thing <laughs> off the floor. Um, but when it's a pandemic, obviously you can't do any of that. And the sense of isolation of new motherhood without the one or two highlights in your week that that ease that isolation and people have written to me and said thank you for letting me know that you can have real happiness and fun times with your kid as they grow older that it doesn't just mean like that's not the only time and I think that's something I really didn't understand one of the things I was most upset and angry about when my son was really small like four or five months before I understood what was going on was like I knew I could only have one child because of all the IVF. I knew that was my shot. And I felt like, I felt like this thing I wanted all my life had been taken away from me. And that baby times were this, I mean, they do go by really fast, but I was like, this, this is my only time to have this. And what I didn't understand is that your relationship with your child only gets more fun and more funny and more enriching and you get more back from it as they become more articulate and more emotionally complicated. And that weirdly, um, when, when I look at my son's four in a couple of weeks and when I look into his face now, I can really see baby him and two-year-old him. I can see all the hymns. And my mum has said that to me in the past, like when I hug you, hello, I see you and I see baby you and schoolgirl you and all the yous. And, um, and I definitely didn't understand that, despite my mum having told me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that is something which I hope people continue to take from the book, that if you suffer grief or trauma with a very small baby in your life, it doesn't have to be the story for your relationship. And I think I think I think people who've had children in the last year are just going to have hopefully the most joyful summer now that they can kind of hang out a bit more with other people, because I think it would be I'd, I really I think what I went through can't compare to some of the challenges of that, what, what mothers have done in the last year um, to not have that support. I mean, that is heroic. <laughs> Again, um, so, so much compassion. One thing I do want to ask you about, though, because it sort of mm. is a theme that's run through your books. And it's something I relate to. And longtime listeners will know this. It's not mm. just the mental. It's not just the emotional issues or the mental issues or the spiritual challenges, not issues that say challenges. Mm. It's also this sense and the, 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 all the books. It's this this physical challenge as well. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> I just, 
I yeah, it's like it that was the hard one of the hardest things was that I I'd come I taught myself with running and then swimming that solace can come in your hardest times from physical endeavor whether it is endurance like a marathon or a long swim or physically changing yourself if you can if you can make yourself fitter or I don't mean I don't mean thinner but I mean when you can kind of chisel away the sporty you from a bit from inside um someone who's been less active um it's such a sense it, it when you when you can see it in the mirror that you can change yourself it does give you faith to believe that you can change yourself emotionally and the fact that the journey <laughs> was going to be four years pretty much for me well I suppose it was probably I would say my son was two and a half before I felt like I was in anything even close to my 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 own body rather than um the sort of disconnection that I felt from it um because it, it was really, really, I mean, I haven't been explicit about this. I probably should. I found it extremely confronting and challenging to just, even though in my heart, I my, my leaning in my life had been to believe trans people that they're trans and that they have all the things I've said already. But to just be told, no, this can be a woman's body too. Um, and for it to be someone I'd had a child with was really challenging. And actually it wasn't as big a step as it could have been because I'd been talking about how sport is a way to break down gender perceptions. And, you know, I'd written loads around women's football in the past and been saying, you know, we should be allowed to be as sweaty and muscly and it shouldn't be put upon us. And that we, that we're not proper women if we're that kind of shape and it's up to us to chisel away at our muscles and have short hair and have sports that are characteristically or traditionally manly. So it wasn't a huge leap, but it was a huge leap when I was already feeling very disconnected from my body by IVF and having a complicated pregnancy and an assault, all of which are things that make you just want to go, do you know what, I'm just going to put my brain in a jar and exist on this shelf for a few months um, <laughs> and my body can just do what it needs to do. And um, and then to, to, to be feeling that anyway and to have the confronting thoughts around, um, you know, women's bodies and trans lives and stuff and then to not have my my thing which I was so proud of which I turned into my career which was to be able to kind of exercise myself happy was really challenging and and actually I suppose it's like that thing where you remember what you wanted to put on your shopping list the minute that you put down your pen and paper I went I'm, I've just written a novel which is mostly set in Norway and I went to Norway with my brother on a research trip um, which involved a lot of very hearty hiking and alcohol in Norway is like nine pounds per drop um so we weren't drinking and we were outdoors pretty much all day for the best part of 10 days and I came back having been spending the whole trip with my the front desk of my brain I don't know why I've come up with this analogy I love it was it. really busy with like a notebook going oh what is this flower and I'm gonna describe this all what's how how do they break make sourdough in Norway and try I was I was consciously harvesting for details for my novel and looking at landscapes and staring at maps and thinking oh look, that's the that's the kind of house I want her to live in yes that's that's exactly what I meant by that sort of path but now I've seen one I know how I'm going to describe it and it turned out 
by the time we were on the plane home, the back office of my brain would be going, finally, you've had the chance to not be in this state of absolute hyper alertness. I, you know, I'd been sleeping short bursts of time. I had a young child. I'd say my son was just over two then. So it was a big deal to leave him with my ex for 10 days. It was a lot. And it, there was a lot of photos and FaceTimes and stuff. But it was, um, it was the act of busying myself with something else that let my brain go, I feel great now. And I, and I loved climbing that mountain and I loved walking on that um you know really difficult gnarly terrain but you know what I think it's time I need and what I realized I needed to do was strength exercise I needed to go and do a load of weights I needed to get my core strong and my hips strong and stuff and I and I hadn't I'd been so focused on those sort of flow states that I had kind of probably been making myself a little bit less fit by kind of running on not quite stable hips and things like that I went to see a physio and my son was probably about four months old and she she was looking at why I had certain backache and stuff because I'd carried my son very lopsided I've got a thing called a bicorner uterus which meant I really only carried him on one side and she looked at me and this isn't everything was really awful to my marriage and she tapped me in my kind of solar plexus and I almost fell over she just tapped me like wear a long necklace would sit on you she kind of like with a couple of her fingers she tapped on my chest and she went you've really lost your balance and I just looked at her like I didn't even cry it was just when two fat tears just fall out and just landed like either side of her where she tapped me and I just nodded and was like mm-hmm. and it was true though I had to find my core I my my stomach muscles were all shot from a C-section and my back was all wonky from carrying him. And so then that had meant that different parts of my legs had strengthened were pushing buggies and all of that stuff. And I hadn't understood that. I'd never, I, I, it was so obvious, but I thought you need to just go for a run and feel the wind in your hair. But I was just hobbling along in this kind of, and I, and yeah. And, and then that in turn, was incredibly satisfying because I worked out that doing the weights and doing that kind of core strengthening was, it did help with everything else. It helped with picking my son up. I suddenly became able to kind of throw him in the air and experience more joy. And then I just did have this massive rush of um, not my helping my body to find my head and my head to find my body it all kind of became much clearer. And then once I felt stronger in myself, in my body and in my mind, I found it much easier to get less kind of um, obsessed by the granular kind of identity politics side of it, <laughs> um, which all of which should be thought about and should be considered and we should take seriously, but also I'd got to the point of like overthinking absolutely everything. Um, and so I'm glad that that intervention physically happened when it did. It, it's true what you say about front desk and back room. And I've described therapy before as imagine that every thought that you've ever had comes out of a sort mm. of ticker tape thing in your brain, but it just, there's no one collects it. It just lands on the floor. Yeah. So by the time you go to therapy, there's just a room full of loose bits of paper that are not organized. 
and through therapy you basically go in and you color code it and you find yeah. it and it's all very and you have yes. a lovely library at the end so and it's absolutely true actually sometimes it's good to focus on things and take them apart and put them back together again in a way that you understand and other times it's good to leave them alone and let them percolate because they sometimes do the work yeah do the work for you yeah and it's hard to know which one you've got stuck on when if the people that you're talking to or if you're not talking to anyone have got too much invested in it of themselves which I think is one of the really amazing things about therapy is that on the whole if you found a decent therapist you're not absorbing what other people think about something I think that's really 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 hard and the, the book Fleischman is in trouble is brilliant about that there's a, a paragraph in it which I was like yes because when you get divorced or your marriage breaks down um a lot of people cannot hide from hide their own anxieties about their marriage so as so you know what was it what were the signs you saw and I kind of had to keep going it's okay I don't think your husband's trans <laughs> it's like and I imagine it's the same with affairs or like financial duplicity or whatever I think people are it's like they have to get a certain level of anxiety about their own setup out before they can be in any way helpful to you and that's not a criticism. I'm I'm perfectly sure that now if I had a friend whose marriage broke up, I'd be like, well, what it's going to be like is picking your way out of rubble. <laughs> Have you considered stomach exercises for core strength? <laughs> and maybe like, just because you did that and it helped you. But um, yeah, it's, it is, that's the beauty of a good therapist is that you don't have to take home what's making them feel better necessarily. Yeah, it's true. Uh, we're going to talk about that hike as well. Although, <laughs> because I found that so beautifully written. Oh, what the hike? Oh, Emma! <laughs> I'm going to get a I'll send you. I'll send you. So, I mean, it was a few hikes, but yeah. Because it was just this metaphor for the, the emotional and the mental struggles that you'd gone through and overcome and then yeah yeah there was there was one hike when because I went with my brother to Norway I'm gonna let you cry while I bore you with the story about my brother (laughs) um and we hadn't been able to just sit down and really talk about this stuff um because of you know I have a new baby and uh, Oh, you okay? You breathing? Do you need to check and pass you some water? <laughs> and we got into this kind of funny little thing where we were on this hike, and it, I mean, in Norway, it is pretty hardcore. Like there are bits where it's so steep that they've just stuck some steel sticks with chains on into the rock face that you just sort of haul yourself up on. And I'd be going, and I'd be like climbing up the side of a mountain, shouting down to my brother. I tell you what, this bit's like the bit when I decided to stop breastfeeding (laughs) so hard. I didn't sleep for four nights. And then there'd be other bits where it would be like you turn the corner and there'd be a view. And I'd be like, this is more like how it felt by March once I'd realized it wasn't all my fault. And it became this giant metaphor for explaining to him because it did feel like I'd climbed a mountain by then by of like all the different rockinesses and exhilarations and desperations and um 
yeah it did it, it it felt like a massive release to be able to experience physically in a really kind of childish graphic way what I felt like I'd gone through emotionally and I think that's the thing I think obviously you can't see the energy expenditure of overcoming something emotional yes. or dealing yes. with depression I mean, you're so tired so tired almost like you feel like you've got too many tabs open in your brain and at least usually your laptop has the decency to kind of get really hot and start going (laughs) and you feel like your brain's doing that and you want to have a way to physically display to people like I've got a lot of tabs open please talk slowly to me yeah please be gentle and I think that's what really moved me because like coming back from depression anxiety all of those things Mm. it's day by day it's not linear process it's not a linear process but I definitely would say that when I think about it I do think about sort of hanging on like cliff edges by the you know by my nails that kind of thing and you think that sometimes to show up as a really terrible version of yourself for your friends and your family Mm. took so much effort which is why yeah but you're you're right like sometimes um people when you say like when when we met last time and you're like you you just seem to be fine sometimes when you're thinking about that stuff so hard all the time every time you're by yourself and you are by yourself quite a lot when you've got a small baby there's like and there's like wiping you spend so long wiping things bums tables (laughs) high chairs buggies uh noses and there's a you're doing so I was doing so much hard thinking then and really trying to yeah sort everything out and it it was so frustrating to not feel you know when you feel that tiredness when you've been to the gym and you've done like really specific workout and even when you lower yourself to get into bed you can kind of feel the glutes that you were just (laughs) working and it's so satisfying because you really know there's a sort of spent tiredness that's so beautiful to feel you know you're going to sleep well when you physically kind of and I just didn't feel I just felt mentally tired I just felt mentally tired and kind of sleep deprived tired um so a lot of those times people like but you always seemed fine like it was like a holiday to be with people who were talking about you know drag race or coronation street or that people I think people always want to let you know that you can talk about your problems with them but I don't think if you I don't think any friend ever should undervalue the nourishing value of talking crap about other stuff when you're having a really hard time to move the spotlight from yourself to a really silly story about someone's um hen night going wrong or teenager asking an indiscreet question or whatever like that is this those are the fibers which are making the net which is keeping the friendship going and so even though you know it's good friending when you're being the person saying how can I help what can I do tell me what you need to what do you need to talk about there's such high value in the um shrieking with laughter at someone's whatsapp during I'm a celebrity or whatever (laughs) like that that is like having a massage to your brain and I think that's um you shouldn't ever not think you're doing that when you're with your friends that appreciate the value of that kind of um joy definitely 
Yeah. Because <laughs> it was of great value to me. And, and that's what I mean also about the silliness of having a, a small child at that age. Like, it's just really, really funny watching someone learning to walk. Like, when everything is so awful, watching someone just, and then they just fall on their big padded nappy bum again and again <laughs> and just look really cheery about it. And it's, I felt like that's what I was doing at that point, was repeatedly trying to stand up. And falling back down on a wobbly old legs and my son would just be doing it and with his little friends as well and they'd be laughing at each other and it would be like watching you know end of the night I call Uber in a minute shots first <laughs> they'd just be rolling around with half in half out of a you know pram or something well, not pram I mean what do I mean I mean a car seat on the floor <laughs> um so yeah well, I know that our time together is drawing to an end. So I just wondered if you <laughs> mind for our listeners who mm. maybe uh, are in the thick of something like this or have just recently experienced something that feels like the world has suddenly changed for them. If you have a little crystallized bit of advice that might start them off on the mm. kind of journey that you've been on, because I, like I said, you can tell from how I've reacted like I think that the way you've spoken about your journey is wonderful and the and um how you've come through it I think one thing that I found really helpful that I always I don't know why but I always had quite a clear idea of this clear in my mind's eye like a uh, image of it was that I always knew that if I could get through this I felt like I was stepping almost into the second half of my life. I felt like if I can pass through this okay, I will be really strong. Like if I can do it, I'll feel like I can do anything. And I do to some degree feel like that now. Like um, it let me leave behind so much, so many anxieties about friendships, about my body, about, you know, just sort of, all the kind of toxic cancel culture, identity politics stuff that's on the news. Um, like I, I mean, I got rid of my Twitter, things like that. Like I just don't, the stuff I thought I needed to be me that it turned out weren't what I was. And so I think try, I mean, obviously, you know, we've all got to live in the now and embrace the day and I don't mean to disregard that, but try to imagine the you you can be once you've got through this. Don't get stuck on the you that might feel like half-made guacamole today, think about what you can and will be, because that was something I really, and also I think for me it was helpful because when you're with a very small child, they they are so visibly growing and changing every day that you have quite a keen, it's a bit like gardening, you have a keen sense of time and seasons changing, but if you're just by yourself or perhaps if you've got older children, I don't know, might be harder to see but but I was I was very aware that there would be a me on the other side of it that I had to get to and I think remembering her if you're in that place now and how great she's potentially going to be could be really helpful I don't have any advice about like moisturizing or helpful things there <laughs> no I love it squats do always do squats and hydrate <laughs> I love that and actually um I remember I phoned my friend years ago when I realized things were very bad and I said I know that I used to do this 
but I can't imagine myself doing it now. Like I've yeah. lost my sense of identity. Yeah. And actually if I'd spy, like if I'd been able to reflect that and thought, well, you can be that again in the future, but better then that would have been really hopeful. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think I did get, I did get to, there were de- endless days where I was really focused on what I was and that I wasn't the 30 year old who'd written running like a girl and could do five marathons and had, you know, spoken on the stage at literary festivals around the world. And there was a, a, there was a lot of grieving for that me before I could see, yeah, but you, you can rewrite the script and all that stuff. Like your talks at the future literary festivals are now going to be more interesting because you've done all of this stuff too. And it took a while to kind of burr onto that me um but yeah it did mean saying goodbye to the old one <laughs> well listeners I think you can probably uh tell that I would highly recommend the book uh somebody to love it's absolutely brilliant the link to it will obviously be in the show notes as will um your social media channels the ones that you still have I'm also this close to deleting twitter FYI <laughs> yeah I mean I'm well I've it's deactivated and I think it sort of self-destructs after 30 days <laughs> and I don't remember the day that I deactivated so every day at the moment is like uh, and it I don't know shall I go back <laughs> shall I not and every day that I don't I know I'm potentially closer to losing everything that's there and every day that I don't I care about it less so we'll see perfect and <laughs> I'll obviously also put the links to everything else that you put out in the world but um thanks for coming back on the show it's been thank so you for lovely having to, me <laughs> it's been lovely to speak to you and come back anytime oh thank you <laughs> take care Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Hemo and I. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can also DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. Or if you want to chat to me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast, then please don't hesitate to click the link in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and click the link to join the Facebook forum. There are thousands of us in there chatting away about all sorts of things. So come along, come and join us. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.